Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Well, how would you like this on your CV? Dr. Hamish Graham is a paediatrician and a researcher who's found a way to halve the number of children dying from pneumonia in hospitals in Nigeria. His work has application right across the developing world. And for that work, he's just won the inaugural CSL Flory Next Generation Award for PhD candidates in health and biomedical sciences. The award is named in honour of Howard Florey, the Australian scientist who, when he was a student, did Nobel Prize-winning research to develop penicillin, the first antibiotic which revolutionised modern medical treatment of infection. Well, Hamish Graham's area is oxygen therapy. And the importance of oxygen therapy in treating people with lung problems has, of course, been known about for a long time, in fact, even before penicillin. But the signs that someone is not getting enough oxygen are not always apparent. And that's why doctors in developed countries routinely measure your oxygen using little instruments that clip onto your finger. I'm sure you're very familiar with that. As Hamish Graham told me, like so many other things, what's commonplace in the first world and lacking in the developing world can be the difference between life and death. I've worked in quite a few different places and I remember when I was in Sudan about 10 years ago uh, treating children in a a refugee camp. Uh, Oxygen therapy was one of those things that was just really difficult to get right. It involves technology, it involves nurses knowing how to give it, it needs um, a power supply or some sort of supply chain and that makes it a bit different to something that fits in a tablet or something like an immunisation that comes out of a syringe. Why is it hard to get oxygen therapy right? Um, I think partly because it involves quite a few different uh, quite a few different links in the chain. I mean, mm. even if you talk to doctors and nurses in Australia, they probably wouldn't really be able to tell you how oxygen is available to them when they want to use it. They just know that it comes out of the wall. Yeah, that's right. But, <laughs> but even in a place like Australia, there's a complex supply chain that needs to go behind the wall to actually get oxygen available and make it uh, used for the children who need it. Yes, I must admit, I did uh, think of that once when there was a... I think there was a story overseas that uh, the gas that had been supplied to a hospital wasn't uh, the wasn't the right gas, and you suddenly realise just how vulnerable the system is. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been some some real horror stories with with oxygen and nitrous oxide being mixed up and accidentally putting patients to sleep when they're meant to be waking waking up. Mm. Um, and so, for if you look in a hospital like I'm at, I work at the Royal Children's Hospital, and it's a very complex safety um, procedure that makes sure those pipes don't get switched and make sure that is actually oxygen, actually real oxygen coming out the other end. Mm. So take that and transfer it as you do to a developing world context. And yes, now I can see why. It is complicated. I've got to say, the first thing that happens when you walk through the door of a hospital is they stick a little oxygen monitor on your finger. Yep. But those oxygen monitors themselves are a pretty amazing piece of technology, uh, not available in the third world much. Uh, not so much. So, yeah, so they were, they were invented in the 70s. Um, and uh, although if you walk into a, a small, medium-sized hospital in many parts of the world, including Nigeria, where I've been working, you'll quite often find an oxygen cylinder standing in the corner, but you'll very rarely find a pulse oximeter. And the pulse oximeter, as we've really discovered, is, is the key to making sure that nurses know which children, which adults, which patients need oxygen, uh, and make sure they give it in, the, in a safe way. All right, so now the pulse oximeter, as I've said, it's a little thing that clips over your finger. Um, it seems to have some sort of light beam coming out of it. Um, how does, and then it tells, it tells the, the, 
a practitioner how much oxygen I have in my blood. How does that actually work? Uh, that's a great question. So you're right. You, you, if you look at uh, the inside of it, you can see a light on one side and then there's a sensor on the other side. So our, um, the oxygen in our blood is carried on our red blood cells. Uh, and depending on how much oxygen is attached to the red blood cell, a particular amount of light will be able to pass through mm. your, your finger, through the small vessels in your finger. And so the pulse oximeter actually uses infrared light and um, normal red light mm. and looks at the ratio that's transmitted through to the detector and then from that calculates what your blood oxygen level is. Okay, I, get, I actually get how that works, but what I don't think I can understand is how do you calibrate that? Because it's going to be different for every patient, surely. Uh, well, no, it's not actually. So it's got to wow. be very, very well calibrated um, in terms of its design. So you can actually buy very cheap um, oximeters uh, online that's uh, more like random number generators. So there are a lot of sort of dodgy ones around. But a good quality one will actually work on, on every patient, no matter the, the darkness of the skin or the fatness of the finger. Really? So long as So long as it can get on the right place and it can, the detector can pick up that light coming through the other side. And someone found this out in the 1970s. Yeah, that's right. It was a, a very inventive um, Japanese scientist who first invented it. Um, though it took it probably into the early 80s until it was actually starting to become available commercially. Um, but, but we're actually really lucky now in that there's a, a couple of groups um, globally who've made an effort in the last 10 years to make it affordable for low resource mm. settings. So you can now actually buy a really good quality pulse oximeter for around 250 US dollars, and you can use that on hundreds of children every day. What did we do before the pulse? oximeter? Uh, so we mostly relied on clinical signs. So that would be by the doctors and nurses looking at how fast you were breathing and whether there are any signs of cyanosis, um, which is blue, uh, a blue tinge to your skin that you mm -hmm. get if your blood oxygen level is very low. Um, but we actually know that even the, the best clinician using the best combination of clinical signs will, will still miss 30% or even up to half of those um, children, those people that have low blood oxygen. So clinical signs are useful, but their their pulse oximetry is by far better. Mm. Our guest on Open House is Dr. Hamish Graham, and uh, Dr. Graham is uh, a researcher who's just won the prestigious CSL Howard Florey Award for Emerging Emerging Scientists. You're also, of course, a paediatrician. Um, uh, how did you get started on your research? Then, what what does your methodology bring to the um, to the relief of things like pneumonia in the third world? Um, so we started on this particular project about uh, four years ago. Um, uh, many others have been working on oxygen access in various countries and uh, we decided we, we wanted to focus on Nigeria, which is one of the countries which um, unfortunately has the highest, uh, one of the highest number of child deaths from pneumonia globally. So we thought it was a place that we could hopefully um, work out how to improve things and hopefully have an impact. Um, so we started working just with 12 hospitals in Nigeria and we've been working with them over the last four years now. Um, initially we went in to see what the situation was like, what they were doing well, what they were having challenges with and then worked with them to figure out how we could improve some of the, the things particularly to do with pulse oximetry and oxygen. 
it's complex, but not mm. necessarily needs to be complicated. There's many mm. pretty simple technologies and simple approaches that, if it's done in the right way, can can have an important impact. And I've got to say, this is all done in partnership with with the local hospitals and the local practitioners yes, there, who, who know the situation better than better than anyone else. So we were we were bringing in ideas that we knew had worked elsewhere, but working out how it could fit into their context. Right, and so that's that's, that's br- a brilliant application of things we already know. And the difference that it makes is going to be profound. Yeah, yeah, and we got pretty quick feedback from the particularly the nurses there when when they started getting familiar with what we were proposing and, and trying it out in their settings. They started seeing the differences straight away. They realised that um, just relying on clinical signs rather than having pulse oximeters meant they were missing a lot of sick children that they really should be um, recognising uh, and not having the oxygen so available was making it really difficult to actually give give these children the best quality treatment. Well, as I said, the difference is profound, and you've halved, you and the, and the partners that you work with, have halved the number of children dying from pneumonia in Nigeria. Well, we're in these 12 hospitals, and I've got to say, as a scientist, we're always very, very cautious about um, numbers, particularly when they look so good as that. <laughs> but, but that's what our initial results are saying, that in these 12 hospitals, um, over the period that they were using the pulse oximetry, uh, pneumonia, the, the, the risk of dying from pneumonia has, has dropped by about a half. And how does that feel? Uh, it, it's exciting, but it's also um, I think it's a real a real challenge because I'm aware that we've we've managed to achieve some good success in 12 hospitals, but there are hundreds of other hospitals in Nigeria and thousands across Africa and the world that um, could uh, really benefit uh, from from things like pulse oximetry, nurses knowing how to identify children who need oxygen, and having ways to give oxygen safely. So it's also I think a real challenge for all of us mm. working in this space to say, all right, so this is something. Mm that's working but how can we actually make that available and affordable to, to everyone who needs it you've got some great partners the bill and melinda gates foundation is is backing you yeah so the bill and melinda gates foundation has funded the work in the first 12 hospitals uh, we've had a lot of support from the world health organization and we've worked very closely with the nigerian government at, at federal and state level yeah. um but yeah now we're, we're really looking to to build on that um, we've got quite a few other people who are doing related work that would like to connect with uh, and, and really see we can build on build on what's been done. Hmm. Dr Graham, I want to ask you, where did your interest in doing this actually come from? Where, uh, you don't wake up one morning and say, I think I'm going to go and help the Nigerian hospitals halve the num- number of deaths from uh, oxygen starvation. So where, where did the desire to help come from in you? Yeah, I guess the broadly, uh, I, I grew up in a in a family that really uh, emphasised uh, interest in the world outside, and um, and I guess embedded in me some sort of desire and and hope that I could make a difference to those who were not such as so so well advantaged as myself. Um, and then over the course of my medical studies and then working as a doctor in, in various places in Sudan, in Afghanistan, that really crystallised for me, I guess, where, where I could make a contribution and, and, and um, it seemed to be uh, research and helping hospitals improve the quality of care. Uh, that seemed to be the thing that really resonated with me and made sense. Was it an easy pathway for you to uh, connect up with people that could get you to Sudan and those sorts of places to, to make that difference? 
there are certainly a lot more opportunities for people who are interested in doing like this, things like this than there were even 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, but, uh, of course, anything like this uh, requires a fair bit of uh, passion and determination. It's um, not necessarily working in, in easy places mm. uh, or doing things that um, are necessarily well remunerated. But certainly the, the value that I get from working with really inspirational colleagues and, you know, occasionally getting those really good results that um, that get some get some wider acknowledgement. Those are the things that really um, really keep me going. Indeed. And do you have a, reli- a religious faith? Uh, I, I was brought up in a in a Christian family, married into a Muslim uh, family, so I would consider myself uh, deep, deeply spiritual. Um, though I'm probably not a, a particularly conventionally religious person. <laughs> Well, I just I feel like saying that you're doing exactly the work that God has asked all of us to do. You're applying your skills and you're repairing things. You're saving lives. I mean, how that is very much a spiritual thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is. And for, for me, spirituality is all about um, drawing together, drawing closer towards togetherness and, and oneness. Um, and that's certainly what uh, drives me both vocationally and mm. in my personal life with my family. Lovely. Well, thank you for what you do. Congratulations on the award and especially thanks for speaking to us tonight. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks very much. Student researcher and Melbourne paediatrician Dr Hamish Graham, the winner of the inaugural CSL Flory Next Generation Award. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.